You know, when we're talking about marginalized populations and communities, we have to note that there was a recent report mid-January that indicated that, you know, there was just 25 doses administered in low-income countries in Guinea, and that was just one country, whereas all the other wealthier countries, around 39 million doses were administered. So it's a striking difference. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. In the previous episode, we introduced viruses as infectious agents that need host cells of living organisms in order to replicate, while briefly introducing the concept of mutations in genetic codes. In this episode, Will, Gordon, LaShawn, and myself, Sully, transition the conversation to examine the broader implications for mutations in the SARS-CoV-2 virus and what that means going forward. This is where we left off. This has been a very interesting discussion so far, and I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier of something you called SARS-CoV-2. And this relates back to one of our earlier episodes when we first introduced and talked about COVID-19. Tell us and remind us, what is SARS-CoV-2 and how is it different from COVID-19? SARS-CoV-2 is the actual virus itself, whereas COVID-19 is the actual disease um, and its manifestation. Mm, Okay. Having cleared that up, um, I'd like for our conversation to move towards, um, you know, having talked about um, what is a mutation and a better understanding of it, how has the SARS-CoV-2 virus been affected by mutations or has it um, since almost the since like the, the last year where it's been um, in the news and you know, kind of creating all these changes in the world that, that we're seeing today so what we see out there um, as its predominant form is the variant called d614g which is basically a fancy notation to say at a single point of the genomic sequence there was a substitution from aspartate to glycine and so we see that this was um this emerged late january to early february in 2020 and it differed from the actual sample that was initially found in in wuhan china so there's been a lot of different research and studies that have gone into looking at this variant and um I was listening to a podcast where Dr. Ralph Barrick from the University of North Carolina was talking and his group has done a lot of research on this new variant, whether it just be on um, models just looking at infectivity in cultures. And they compared this new variant to the original ancestor and it found that this new variant was almost 10 times more um, infective or um, transmissible amongst the culture plates in vitro so that led them to do further studies to show um you know how how much different are these two viruses like are there any differences in terms of severity etc and so um, they also collaborated with individuals from uh, wisconsin university of wisconsin and um, they basically used a hamster model and they also showed in that hamster model that this uh, newer variant the D614G variant was actually uh, more um, transmissible than the ancestor um, of the original var- uh, the original um, SARS-CoV-2. So, um, and we we have to take this with a couple caveats, right? 
this is a hamster model this is not indicative of how it's going to you know work or function in a human model for example so what they essentially found that there was a higher viral load within these hamsters um, for the newer variant but there wasn't too much of a difference it was just kind of a modest increase in viral load uh, but it, it didn't really uh, make too much of a difference in terms of overall severity of the disease they did find that in this newer variant there was a bit more weight loss but it was just a modest um, mm. a weight loss that occurred but interestingly what they did find as well though is that they found on the surface of SARS-CoV-2 that this mutation actually allowed for a flap on the membrane of the protein which is used to a spike protein used to penetrate and infect cells they found that this mutation actually kind of opened up and so this allowed for a couple things it allowed for the virus to be able to uh, better infect uh, host cells which uh, what you, you may hear in the news saying hey um, this virus is found to be more transmissible so that's one of the reasons because the spike protein is more exposed so it can allow uh, for greater infection and um, another point that Dr. Ralph Barrick brought which was really interesting is that this new variant although it is uh, more transmissible it also comes with kind of a trade-off right Right now, um, it's estimated around 5 to 10% of the population may be infected with COVID-19, uh, right? So that, that leaves a huge proportion of the population, the global population, that's naive, meaning it hasn't been exposed to COVID-19. So right now, this mutation that allows for this flap that's more effective um, has a higher transmissibility. It allows currently um, the ability to infect more people. But as vaccines and there's a greater proportion of um, the population get immunity, there's going to be a pressure that's on this virus to adapt because maybe um, it's, it was actually found that this flap also has this downside to it where it allows the host's immune cells to actually neutralize it more readily and antibodies to more readily access this new variant. So it's actually more sensitive to those kind of um, counterattacks. So at that point, the virus has to also make changes, um, whether it's through mutations or other innovative strategies. From what you said, then it's kind of almost a trade-off then, right? Mm -hmm. um, it becomes more infectious, but it also becomes more vulnerable mm -hmm. and susceptible to the body's immune system. Yeah. So yeah, I just wanted to ask then, so um, going back to what you mentioned earlier about how they did initial studies in hamsters um, and in cell cultures, yeah, to have, I guess, to find the evidence that it, there was increased transmissibility. Mm. Um, is is this is is it ever going to be a possibility, or like um, for them to study what it's like in humans? Like, like let's say, um, yes, to see what it's how transmissible it actually is between humans. I'm just curious because, like, I feel like in order to do that, it, there's definitely some ethical concerns with yeah. that. So I don't know. Yeah. And Gordon will talk about this more, but you could see that's what's going on right now. The country specific data that we're collecting, it's almost like a natural experiment. Mm -hmm. We're not intending for COVID-19 to spread everywhere, but based on collection and sampling, we're able to kind of trace these different variants of the virus. Mm. And um, the D614G, um, formerly, I guess it's still a variant, formerly was like a novel variant. Now it's the predominant version of, of COVID-19 that circulates. So you can see, um, if you talk, if you reflect a little bit on what we touched on at the beginning about um, trans, the viruses that are more transmittable will tend to outcompete. They may be more 
deadly virus, the deadly versions of the virus because they're able to spread from person to person better. Um, that's exactly what we're seeing with D614G in that that's now the more dominant form of the virus that circulates until there's another um, variant that comes along that even strikes a better balance with in infectivity and like severity of, of disease. And, yeah. you know, that keeps happening and happening. So mm. we're already seeing it happening. Um, and the way the way they kind of um, come to these conclusions is when they do sampling of uh, people infected with COVID-19 and they sequence the DNA, they're able to have basically basic surveillance of the genotypes of the, of the viruses that are circulating. And then they're able to see that D614G kind of started off in the minor percentages. And now it's um, when they do sequence, that's the most predominant one that they're finding. And then with the new variants that we'll be discussing, um, like this, the one South Africa variant and then the new UK variant, um, basic surveillance is telling them that the numbers of those infections are rising faster. And they're finding that the places in which they're um, picking up those in hotspots, um, there's sense there tends to be a um, more transmissibility of of COVID-19 in those communities, and obviously you can test that through things like percent positivity when you do a COVID test. How many, what percentage of people being tested for COVID come back positive, mm. and that's usually a very good indicator of how bad the spread is in a certain area. Yeah, mm. and keep in mind that this data might not be perfect, given that there are a lot of gaps in certain surveillance systems. But we're, scientists are doing their best to kind of get these estimations and do projections to give them a better idea of what they can expect. Yeah, and, and not only that too, there's confounding, right? So in mm. areas where there might be more severe spread, there might be more countermeasures like, you know, lockdowns and stuff to prevent it. So we're, we're not able to see in, like you said, well, we can't really do a controlled situation to find the exact answer, but it's the, these epi folks the epidemiologists and all those scientists do a good job with their modeling to kind of tease out yeah. some of those things we can say yeah. um you know as best as we can in terms of some level of cause and effect mm. yeah and i guess another thing to keep talking about surveillance a bit in august to september 2020 a variant of the infection among uh, farmed mink was identified in denmark and it was later transmitted to humans and it was referred to as cluster five and there was initial fears about, you know, the, what would be the result of this mutation in terms of the duration of the immune, um, immune, immune, or the duration of kind of the infection or other traits in terms of severity. But um, as of December 31st, it was found that 13 identified cases had this variant and this mutation. So it's kind of an indication, um, at least to WHO, that um, humans have not appeared to kind of take up this. A virus and it hasn't been spread too widely yeah but what's the broader lesson here though the broader lesson is that mutations can be beneficial in the perspective of the virus or sometimes it can actually diminish some of their infectivity uh, the main reason they're focused on this example is because um, when we talk of zoonosis so transmission of um, you know pathogens from um, animals to humans or vice versa um, they're our cells are different. So our cells are different from bats, our cells are different from our dogs, our cells are different from, you know, other animals um, to varying degrees. So the virus, if it's the same virus uh, related to, you know, we talked about the ancestral strain like LaShawn talked about, um, in order to to replicate in another host such as a dog or, or you know, the mink, it has to mutate. Um, so those 
exposures to um, animals being exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 um, is dangerous for us as humans in that it creates pressures for the virus to mutate further, um, infect the um, another host, another animal, pick up more mutations and potentially jump back to us being more deadly than it was the first time. Mm -hmm. So that's why th this particular example is very important. And I guess to add to that point, I think it's a very striking example for the need globally to consider the One Health model where you're considering animals, humans, and the environment because each of these components are very important in terms of managing the health of the environment, managing the health of animals, and managing the health of humans. Yeah, I, this really comes back to one of PHI's earliest episodes on One Health, right? Where mm -hmm. we talked about how if you if you think about mink, like like an animal like of, of like the mink, it's it's supposed to be a, a wild animal. It's not like your domesticated cat, cattle or sheep or things like that, in which over centuries or like millennia, um, they've kind of kind of I think humans as well has become adapted to to these animals and so it's it really brings it back to the whole situation back in wuhan with the uh, at the market where there's just all these wildlife kind of just there um, i think this is a very similar situation is it not uh, where you have um, you know farm farming facilities keeping these wildlife there for the purpose of human use or consumption but i think that in itself poses um more of a greater risk of transmission and of spread absolutely like when you when there's um you know nature is the way it is and then um, human activity kind of creates a different environment where things that weren't previously interacting whether it be animals um, or you know microorganisms that weren't in contact with each other before are now um having more opportunities to interact there's a lot of things that can happen such as a pandemic and even go back to the story of Ebola, that's it's a pretty similar story with Ebola, how it happened, not necessarily a wet market, but um, there is this, whether selective pressures for, um, in terms of social unrest or what have you, that led people to, um, you know, being more exposed to various wild animals. And then those kind of introduced a new type of virus into the human population. And then when a virus is new to the population, there's no residual immunity and then you get, you get a lot of death. So that's that's unfortunately what happens. Yeah. And so as we look um, and reflect on 2020, we have the first notable vari variant, which um, was discussed, the D614G variant. Um, and, and then we had the the next notable variant sometime in the s late summer, which was the cluster five from Denmark. We move we move on to um, yes, move on, move on to December 14th. And this was the date that the WHO um announced that the UK officials reported a new variant known as VOC 2020-12-1, which I think stands for Variant of Concern um, in the year 2020, in the month of December, and then it's the first variant. Um, and this has since been commonly coined as the UK variant. And I think this is one of the ones that's I would say is of a more of a concern right now, and I'm sure for our listeners at home, this is one of the, those variants that has been popping up across the news outlets, um, across the internet and things like that. So um, maybe let's talk about this and why it's so, why it has become kind of dominating um, every, our, our regular just conversations. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, this is like some great naming choices right there. Um, <laughs> 
Gotta love that nomenclature. Um, secondly, <laughs> I can talk about how people are talking about it, at least. Um, there's, there's a huge concern over like these kind of mutations and like how transmissible it is among the UK population, which I mean, now it's spread to over 31 countries so far. So it's, there's this general feeling that people, people are like, oh, God damn, we're going to go through the same thing again. Mm-hmm. And which is very like tiring and it uh, becomes very straining on our populations. And like that would lead to um, less cooperative uh, behavior with uh, like scientific recommendations from say the government or from experts so that's that's one area of concern is this variant um voc 2020 is it more severe than let's say the the ancestral strain that was found in wuhan or even just the the d d614 g variant yeah so so right now the the evidence suggests that uh this, the, the range of symptoms, I guess, and the severity of the symptoms, um, there's no significant difference compared to um, the ancestral strain or some of the other um, variants, as you would call it. Um, but like, I think it starts off with, I mentioned before that most mutations are, are not a concern. So most mutations are not, don't lead to a variant of concern. However, we're concerned when we notice in certain communities that the transmission rates are incredibly high um, given that there's so many um, preventative or non-pharmaceutical interventions that are in place such as lockdown stay-at-home orders and stuff so this gives research an inkling that there might be something deeper going on other than people just just not following the rules Um, so a lot of these are discovered in those situations where there's an abnormally high transmission rate for COVID-19 and then when you sequence it like you mentioned you notice that hey this is actually a different variant of um, the one that we're used to and then using techniques like LaShawn mentioned um, in the lab and stuff you can actually test to see in vitro or even in animal models um, if the transmissibility rate is higher um, in from the human data that we have uh, like I mentioned it does seem like there is no um, issues of concern in terms of severity of symptoms or negative outcomes such as the mortality rate but they're reasonably certain that the transmission rate is indeed higher for this new variant. Mm. Yeah. Um, I guess just to bump back to that point you made about why do you think it's getting so much attention in the media, etc. I think there's a bunch of factors. Um, the first one, I think, it has something to do with Sully, what, what Sully mentioned. That was the fact that people are getting... Um, when these new variants pop up, it's very... Um, fatigue inducing individuals are trying to you know try their best um, to follow public health protocol and then when they see that there's a new variant um, out there it's like oh is there ever going to be an end to this so i think um, that's one factor another factor is you know a lot of people are worried right there Mm -hmm. there are these um, mutants there's these variants that are being uncovered now there's that concern we have this vaccination is this vaccination still going to be working there was also a south african variant and as um at the time of recording in late 2021 a new variant was discovered in brazil 
Um, and so I think it just goes back to our early discussion that as time has gone on, this ancestral virus has started to not only um, mutate, but also starting to um, different regional almost versions of it has started to pop up around the world. And um, I think that's that would lead well into our, our next discussion of what, what's what's the social implications of these mutations and these variants, right? And depending on where you live, uh, what kinds of social uh, or public health measures are in place, um, the effects felt by the populations there are different. What What is the real or the potential impact that these variants might have on vaccine development or on you know, the state of vaccinations or immunization programs that certain countries have already started? Hmm, that's a loaded question. <laughs> Unpack. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think in general, with all these mutations, um, it comes down to a couple of things. And of course, uh, different countries have different responses, different communities have different responses. And with that, they have different capacities as well. But according to the WHO, you know, when we're considering these variants, from, I guess, the individual level almost, these mutations are happening, you know, every day, all the time. So from our perspective as citizens of our respective countries, it's important to follow these public health protocols, right? And the WHO um, on their website also notes that you know, the potential for virus mutation increases with the frequency of human and annual animal infections. So their solution is basically by reducing these overall transmission events, you're essentially um, reducing the overall um, potential of these viruses to mutate. And so with that, you have to consider the global strategy of being able to reduce um, and follow these public health um, protocols, whether it be through PPEs, personal protective equipments, um, frequent hand washing regimes, um, cough etiquette, wearing a mask when in crowds, and, you know, um, in Canada, in Ontario at least, uh, preventing non-essential traveling. So there's different uh, measures that are in place um, to prevent this kind of spreading of these variants. Another point that I want to unpack here regarding the implications of these viral variants on the pandemic is whether these variants will further impact um, the already vulnerable populations who have experienced COVID-19. So as we see across the world, um, populations and subpopulations within countries are not affected the same by these variants. And I wonder if, um, you know, if, if these variants would have any additional impact on um, people's access to he- health services um, and things like that. Uh, noting, of course, that the variant itself isn't going to make people, I would say, like, um, it's not going to make things worse. But I think just the fear or even the increased transmission might, no, like if, if, if it affects a population who is already struggling to, to cope with the pandemic and it gets hit with a, with a variant that makes them more makes it more transmissible i think that's that that in itself has a lot of um, negative effects no i think that's an important point to touch on because while the severity of symptoms and maybe the mortality rate is staying the same um if the virus is able to infect 10 times the number of people 
Uh, in theory, that's 10 times the number of deaths or, or hospitalizations, for example. So I would say definitely there's a, there would be a disproportionate, disproportionate impact on um, certain communities and certain countries or maybe on the resource low setting side. Um, if if um, healthcare, the healthcare system is already overrun, to then put additional strain on it from these um, variants that are more um, uh, transmissible would put more people in a position where they would be able to, where they would get sick and need um, uh, need to be hospitalized and receive treatment in the hospital. And if we, our infrastructure is already being challenged because we can't keep up with um, with with uh, variants that are less transmissible, um, that's not good news either. Mm -hmm. And um, at a certain point, that threshold um, is going to be far surpassed where hospitals are able to keep up. And then we might even see more disproportional death on top of that. So I think mm -hmm. that's a very um, real concern. But he, I want to go back to the, the vaccine development part too. So in general, it, you know, the transmissibility part, we mentioned that... Um, the strain that the, the variant that now now predominates uh, the D614G um, there was a mutation that occurred in the um, receptor binding site on basically the spike protein that latches on to your cell um, and basically that's how it gets its that's how it makes its way into your cell um, that also exposes sites as LaShawn mentioned to be neutralized by antibodies so in terms of vaccines, which are the ones that are generating an immune response to create those antibodies, um, in the long run, perhaps that's a good thing in that the vaccines were, were not as concerned about the vaccines not being able to work. One, because those elements that it targets seem to favor transmission, which, which then favors how well the vaccines can work. And then two, the vaccines aren't only for a specific area of a of a, a viral particle um, it targets it generates an immune response in a broad sense as well that's able to recognize these viruses so if we have one kind of mutation that we're concerned about that doesn't completely um, negate how useful a vaccine can be yeah one of the things that i want to bring up on the topic of vaccinations is you know when we're talking about marginalized populations and communities we have to note that there was a recent report mid-January that indicated that, you know, there was just 25 doses administered in low-income countries in Guinea, and that was just one country, whereas all the other wealthier countries, around 39 million doses were administered. So it's a striking difference between, you know, the delivery and distribution of drugs um, between low-income low countries and higher-income countries. So there has to be something there, or at the end of the day, you know, these variants may be transmitted to these communities, and they won't have even the protection from vaccination to even um, combat it. So it's a, it's a very tough situation. Yeah, but, and in, if you unpack that even more, Lashawn, we know in terms of the vaccine, COVID-19 vaccine or the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, um, there are a couple um, vaccines that have been approved or moved through the pipeline. We know about the Pfizer, uh, we know about um, Moderna, we know about the AstraZeneca Oxford. There are also a couple of different ones that mm -hmm. are, have made its way that have been developed through by other countries. Yeah. And the... the uh, based on the results of those studies, uh, we know that the efficacy is actually lower um, than some of those 
other vaccines like Pfizer that are being distributed in the higher income countries. So on top of um, the, the low income countries only getting, like you mentioned, LaShawn, 25 doses, what types of vaccines are they getting yeah. down there? Are yeah. they getting the even, are they getting the lesser effective vaccines as well? Mm. Cause that's a, that's doubly disturbing on top of them not getting that much at all. Yeah. And on top of that, what the populations think about these vaccines, which directly affects their participation in immunization programs because directly depends on their trust for these vaccines. Yeah, no, and it's, it's it's just in response to that figure that was Sean shared of 20, was it 20 doses, 25 doses? Yeah, that's that's real. That's a real, um, you know, wake up call, but also uh, an illustration of just the inequities right, that exist in huge health and global health. And I think just it's going back to one of the nice point that Sally and Vashon both raised, which was the the social stress and fatigue um, associated with the pandemic. For me, it's it seems clear that um, you know with as research is um, is more research um, is uncovered regarding the transmission of this of these variants. Seems likely that additional travel restrictions or lockdowns or public health measures will be placed. And as Vashon said, um, you know, one of the ways to almost combat these mutations is to stop the, it from spreading, right? And stop it from further developing. But I think it's what, what I really want to question is after a year, um, or, you know, or even longer in some areas of being confined and controlled by these measures. It's, it's really like like what Sully said, how likely are the local populations and communities willing to endure for much longer, right? And it's, and it's I feel like there's eventually going to be a tipping point. And ho- hopefully, it, hopefully there isn't, but, you know, the risk of a tipping point where people are just going to say, you know, screw it. And when that happens, the real effort to control this thing is, is going to be jeopardized. Yeah, hopefully the... Hopefully vaccines are the silver bullet. <laughs> yeah. But you know what, too? It, it goes back to something we talked about in our one of our earlier episodes, too. Like, for countries where the roads are good, maybe you're less likely to die in a road traffic uh, collision. Maybe you're less likely to die from, you know, other conditions because the healthcare is so good. People are out there worried about dying from hunger. So maybe you, me, and the, the, the four of us here aren't concerned about not eating tomorrow there's people where there are people out there that would probably choose to put themselves at risk um, of COVID-19 whether it's in Canada or other low-income countries in order to earn a living because they're they believe they're more likely to die from just starvation than dying from COVID-19 so everyone's um, health priority is different too and like you mentioned people are like you know these um, sweeping stay-at-home orders and stuff in different countries where um the, the you know that are more impoverished um they they it, it's not likely that it'll be last when people's well-being is you know if you're living paycheck to paycheck mm-hmm. and you, you need to go out there to work uh maybe you're less likely to heed those measures and I, I can we blame them i think that's just the perfect illustration again of you know in a global pandemic and an international public health emergency it's it's far beyond simply looking at the health or the, the the health, you know, like your biological side of things, but more so mm-hmm. than the social aspects, um, you know, the, and just how how this 
like this pandemic really displayed and showed us that similar emergencies will likely happen in the future and it needs to be a, a, a full an all of society effort i guess in the interest of time just just to wrap this up um fellas i am um, one final implication that I found interesting um, and I think is also very relevant um, related to these new variants is the issue of stigma, right? Um, given that there is no agreed upon nomenclature for these variants, as we've seen, you know, we have your D614G, you have your VOC20, it's it's all kind of in shambles here uh, as of now. Um, people tend to refer to these variants by their mm. their place of origin or where the they were UK first UK variants. Yeah, exactly. UK variant. You have your South African variant. You have the, um, the new The former Brazilian. president of the United States was calling the initial virus as well. Yeah, the Wuhan variant. So, and I think um, this is something that um, mm. Paho mentioned in one of their webinars and series where they, they talked about that the global community and especially the global scientific community must come together you know in a collaborative fashion to have an agreed upon nomenclature one just for the sake of organization planning and all that stuff but also you know to to reduce the the risk of stigma towards these countries and people who are from these countries um you know we've seen these we saw this at the beginning of when the pandemic first started with cases spreading out of wuhan and the backlash faced by you know east asian people of Chinese descent and as LaShawn mentioned you know especially if you have a president of the country kind of feeding the flames um, mm-hmm. I think with as more and more variants begin to emerge um, hit our news headlines and feel the effects of it it's also important to to note the stigma that might yeah. be associated with that yeah no absolutely and language is so important and like you mentioned, can give rise to stigma and, you know, have certain connotations behind the language that we use. In terms of, I guess, that global effort, that global concerted effort to, you know, come up with more standardized nomenclature, I think that's going to be important. I do realize and I do, I did mention earlier that there's a lot of um, gaps in information and information sharing within countries and across countries. So the WHO in some of their reports, they always mention, you know, you got to make some of this data widely accessible to the public and for the collaborators worldwide to be able to come up with these strategies that would enable them to come up with the standard nomenclature. Because if one individual in a certain area of the world, um, you know, detects a virus and maybe there's a similar variant somewhere else, how do you kind of connect those two together to say, okay, maybe they're um, slightly different, how much different, um, can we classify them as the same type of mutation? These are kind of ongoing dialogues that are happening globally right now. And I think it's essential. We we have to, COVID-19 is already such a huge burden globally and they're affecting communities disproportionately. So anything we can do at the leadership level um, the scientific community level, I think, is going to be important to help reduce that stigma. In most instances, mutations in the viral genome do not increase their ability to spread and cause severe infection. However, recent examples of emergent variants of COVID-19, or the SARS-CoV-2 virus, demonstrate that the threat of more transmissible viruses causing COVID-19 remains very real. One thing is clear though, Public health preventative measures still remain our best defense against this virus, 
despite the recent developments with therapeutic interventions and vaccines. As we continue to focus our efforts on ending the pandemic, we must ensure that the unique needs of vulnerable communities and countries remain at the forefront, and for us as a global community to come together to tackle this issue. My name is Will, your host for this episode, signing out. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations, inspiring community action. If you enjoy our content and would like to stay up to date, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. To learn more about our community initiatives and how you can support us, visit our website at thepublichealthinsight.com. Join the PHI community and let's make public health viral.